Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters— With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. Our colleague Noel will be returning shortly. They call me Ben. We're joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccant. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this the stuff they don't want you to know. This is a free show. Uh, this uh, Some of the topics we cover are not appropriate for all ages, but importantly, we don't ask for ID. You don't need Mm -hmm. to present any paperwork to us uh, to hang out with us on the show. Uh, But, you know, Matt and I were talking about today's topic a little bit off air earlier. And I forgot to ask you, Matt, did you what's the weirdest form of ID you've ever had? Or what's the weirdest thing, if not you, uh, that you've seen someone else try to use as ID? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I just I'm rewatching Utopia, the remake of the British version for U.S. television on Amazon, and the weirdest form of ID in there is like a a little name tag uh, for like some kind of get together at a con, like a festival, and Ooh. it's just a a kid who scrawled his name on it, uh, and it was accepted. He got the room key, and then <laughs> let, it led him down the path. Um, so. Uh, for me, it's always just been a driver's license. Really, that's the only thing I've ever had outside of like a campus ID for a college. Mm, campus ID. Yeah, people still use that for discounts. 
uh, movie theaters and so on in the U.S. Uh, a lot of people use passports. I've used the passport for ID multiple times. Um, I've seen some things that didn't work. I remember seeing a very inebriated man uh, many years ago who was visibly upset that neither his fishing license nor, true story, his blockbuster card would be accepted as the ID at the door of the bar. Um, and if you're hearing this, man, I hope you found your license. Uh, but that was that was like more than a decade ago. So it was very, very strange situation. But we know people need ID, right? How else can you know someone is who they say they are? I think most people on the planet agree that like, even if you are very, very far right, you're very, very far left. One thing you can agree on is that certain activities should at least be age restricted. And that's a big role uh, that our ID system in the U.S. plays. You wouldn't, for example, want a six-year-old raging at a keg party. You also probably wouldn't want that same six-year-old uh, hot-rodding down the interstate on a Porsche or flying a plane. That's why we have driver's licenses, pilot licenses, things like that. Although they are just meant to say that you are legally allowed to operate a vehicle of one sort or another, because America has such a huge car culture, they function as IDs. That's, I mean, Matt, that's a question I had when... Um, Oh, it comes up cyclically every time there's an election. Someone will start saying what we need is a voter ID card or something like that, Ugh. right? And yeah, and there's a solid argument to be made that those claims are not made in good faith. I think the way they are instituted often runs the risk of preventing people from voting instead of weeding out fraudulent votes. But so we got a, we got a bunch of stuff, you know. But not any national ID, really. Yeah, as of right now, we don't have a national ID here in the States. And, you know, we, we said at the top, but the primary reason to have that ID or to have it function in the way that it does here in the U.S., the driver's license, I mean, uh, is because it contains on it a certain amount of private information, your private information, and it is controlled by some government entity. Right. Uh, or in this case, like Department of Motor Vehicles within your state, it's controlled by that, which is then in turn uh, ties to the federal government. So it makes sense why you would want something like that. This whole episode, we're going to be talking about the dangers of having a physical a thing like a card that has lots of personal information on it and how that changes when it becomes digitized. Right. Yeah. So a lot of people in the U.S. in particular might have a driver's license, but not, might not even drive, you know, especially if they live in a very crowded city. They might be way more likely to pull that little card out when they're trying to buy alcohol or tobacco or certain medicines or other age-restricted products. That's why a lot of people get a license or a state ID in the first place. But you brought up an Just important Just to prove point. age, right? Yeah, just to prove age. Uh, you brought up an important point uh, when you mentioned the move to a digital sphere. The idea of a physical license or ID might not be long for the world in a very real way. Here are the facts. First, okay, concept of an ID. Identification document. We'll just give you some quick history. It's pretty old. Uh, one precursor to this came up in 19th century France. So Napoleon 
We remember that guy. He was in Bill and Ted. Uh, Napoleon wanted to kind of streamline the French government after the revolution between 1789, 1799. So he brought some clarity to property rights. He made these new kind of organs of the state, bureaucratic offices. And he also introduced a system of ID documents for workers. He did this in the early 1800s, 1803 to 1804. At first, these things, these pass cards, were just intended for people in the working class. But these reforms inspired other countries to follow suit. The streets, as they say, were watching, or uh, Matt, as you just pointed out, the the streets around my neighborhood are growling more often than not when we record. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about Sultan Mahmoud II. Uh, He was pretty impressed with what Napoleon was doing and by 1839, he thought, you know, these are this is a great opportunity to build out state capabilities through systems like this, identification systems. And in 1844, he rolled out national ID cards in the Ottoman Empire. So they're older than a lot of people might expect. They were meant to consolidate state institutions, but also to uh, standardize the kind of information that was collected about people and then use that information as a way to place them in society, place them in a social hierarchy. Uh, Originally, 19th century, like one of the predecessors of the modern ID card also comes about in the 1800s. It was originally made by police and experts in biometrics they this was a these id cards were a response really to a changing world there was uh we're talking about the industrial age people are moving around the world at an unparalleled pace cities are becoming increasingly important and as the cities grow so does their rate of crime it's so weird but it makes sense their solution makes sense at this point It might surprise you, it definitely surprised me, but it might surprise you fellow conspiracy realists to learn that not many countries actually did adopt some kind of national ID system until World War II. So the history is older, but like the new stuff is is still pretty new, you know? Well, it makes an awful lot of sense that and there are more than this, but two of the primary reasons that an ID would be beneficial for a group would be if it's a government and if there's some kind of state-run institution that needs to identify you to get you either benefits or to impose taxes on you, right? That, right. that makes sense. The second, and the second one is if there is crime and, you know, you can't just go around asking everybody, have you seen this person? They look kind of like this. Uh, they were wearing this. Do you have any idea who that person is? No? Okay, great. Well, I guess we're done here. Uh, crime not solved. Everybody go home. You, you need to be able to prove someone is who they are, especially if they're traveling uh, across a country or between countries. Makes total sense, but I just never thought about it in those terms, Ben. Yeah, agreed. And you know, we're not saying that these things are not important. We're we're not even saying that they're unnecessary. But we have to set this up to understand the great controversy. And the great opportunity for conspiracy and corruption just on the horizon, way closer 
than you might you might think, than any of us would like to think. Uh, like we said, the U.S. right now doesn't have a national ID card. We have a bunch of stuff that does what a national ID card would do. Your driver's license comes from your home state, right? It doesn't come straight from D.C. Your social security card, this might surprise people, your social security card technically doesn't verify your identity. It was made to help comply with payroll tax laws. That's why it's mm-hmm. there. Uh, so private companies, when they ask you for the last four digits of your social security number, that's just a thing that they do. You know what I mean? That's like that. That's just a way that they can they can, for their purposes, confirm you are who you say you are. Uh, but still not the same as a national ID. There's no federal agency with nationwide jurisdiction. There's like there's no federal agency that is directly sending ID documents to U.S. citizens and mandating that they be used. You know, you can live your whole life and never get a driver's license, for instance. Yeah. Yeah, there's no federal bureau of identification yet. Really quickly, take it back to World War II and the concept that many countries didn't have some kind of national ID until that time, until after World War II. Mm -hmm. That, again, makes sense to me, but again, I hadn't thought about it. When you think about conscription, necessary conscription during a world conflict like that or a large enough conflict where you have to get people of fighting age and you have to identify who they are and get them into the system as quickly as possible. Uh, It makes sense that you, if it were to happen again, you would want to keep track of everybody who's around who could potentially fight. Yeah, that is a huge piece of the puzzle too, right? Because we have to remember conscript armies were more prevalent than they are today. Uh, This is strange. The conversation about national ID today in the U.S., it continues. It continues on a cyclical basis. You'll see it come up in conversations almost any time there's an election. And every so often, you'll see a push for a standardized national ID. Someone says, okay, we can do this. Uh, We're working smarter. We're making things simpler. And we're ultimately going to be helping everybody. But every time so far that legislation is proposed or floated, it fails. It has not happened yet. And it's not one political party who's against it. Uh, There are people on both sides of America's great political divide that are concerned national ID cards are a symptom of totalitarian societies and that they might pave the way for a very undemocratic future. But this might not be the case for much longer. I mean, imagine, okay, let's say Matt and Mission Control and I go out for a night on the town. Uh, What town are we in, Matt? What what are we doing? Uh, We are in Boise, Idaho. Yeah, we are. We're in Boise, Idaho, and we're partying. We're going to paint paint the potato town red. And so we're leaving our hotel and we, let's say we grab an Uber, right? We're going downtown to check out, you know, the restaurant, bar, club scene. Uh, The Uber operates on an ID, right? So we know that Paul, based on his national ID, can get this Uber. And that national ID will also be used to pull his banking information to pay for the Uber. Then we go to the bar. We don't present our driver's licenses. Instead, a complex surveillance system clocks us 
and confirms that we are the people who said we are, we are, and that we are old enough to go into this bar. And then we buy a round of drinks, right? Or we uh, get a karaoke room or something. And at each step, that ID is used as kind of a skeleton key to our financial lives, to our physical lives, um, to even our movements along Earth's surface. And it's just the same thing. It's kind of like, um, it's, in that respect, it's similar to uh, a thing that happens on MacBooks where you have a password keychain, right? And you've got like one thing to rule them all, which full disclosure, I don't use, even though it's a pain in the ass to remember a bunch of passwords. Uh, that This is the idea. It sounds really convenient, honestly, but a lot of critics, and we're not just talking about super fringe people on the internet, a lot of critics believe this could be immensely dangerous. Today's question, why? We'll pause for a word from our sponsor and uh, we'll tell you. It's spooky. Spoiler. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. 
Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Here's where it gets crazy. Ben, before we jump in, in that setup that we had in Boise with Paul, are we carrying something? Is Paul carrying something with him that is getting clocked? Is it biometrics? Is it just his phone that's getting verified? What do you What do you think? Well, ideally, it would be a system with multiple possible inputs. So there could be something on his phone that uses facial recognition. But then when we get to the Applebee's, which is obviously like the big ticket party for us, then mm-hmm. there could be something like CCTV or some kind of camera that's cloud connected that can also verify uh, that biometric information and then cross check it against the geolocation capabilities of that phone and then say, yep, these are the right guys. They're in the right place. Let them in. They got some apps to eat. (laughs) Use your app to order some apps. I love it. Let's do it. Let's make an app just called app. Someone has beaten us through that already. If not, how disappointing. You're right, though. Like, that's that's a good question. Because then if you're a person who wants to avoid being sucked up in a system like this, then logically you could just say, I'm going to use an old flip phone, a phone that's just a phone, right? Uh, And even that still has some location information about you. Uh, Then you might just say, I'm not going to use a phone at all. I'll just see you when I see you. You know what I mean? Write me a letter. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but your face is still there at the Applebee's. Your face is still there. I bet you could just wear a giant mask or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a giant might eyeball, be a little maybe. Sus. Something that mm-hmm, helps you blend mm-hmm. in, right? Yeah. Uh, so, so this is, uh, th- that joke will make sense in fall. Huh. So, yep. so the, the, uh, the fascinating thing about that is what, what you're saying hits on something that I believe is really important and more people need to be aware of. In the U.S. and in many other countries, the law generally states that one has no expectation of privacy in a public space, right? And if you are in a private space, Technically, any restaurant you go to is going to be a private space. It has owners, and they're not the government. Uh, They can capture your image if they wish. It's kind of up to them what they want to do. Uh, And you, it is understood that you can't. You can ask. You know, like if you're a celebrity and you want to go to a fancy restaurant, I'm sure you could have one of your people call ahead and say, "Hey." I'm Luther Vandross's agent, or I work for uh, Beyonce Knowles or um, Steven Seagal or whatever. And I, and I want, uh, we need that restaurant closed down. We're just going to have 
uh, our our VIP there so we can keep things private, keep the paparazzi away. You can do that, and restaurants will do that because you're paying them. But if you're just a normal person, a non-famous, non-wealthy person, and you show up, then there's not really much you can do. You can't say, don't take pictures of me at Applebee's. Uh, they'll be like, well, don't come back. <laughs> when you go to Applebee's, you have to take selfies. What is wrong with you? It's, it's the whole part point of the, being at Applebee's. <laughs> right. People need to know. People need to know that we are living high on the hog. Uh, this is not science fiction. This digital ID we're describing. It is not. It is already happening. It's. It just hasn't hit the U.S. in quite the same way yet. But countries across the planet are already doing this. India is doing it. Australia is working on it. Of course, China will, I imagine, do some extreme things with this kind of system. Canada. Canada as well. Yeah, Canada, uh, which means Five Eyes is going to lend their tremendous data to something like this. Governments want to digitize what they're really doing, they're digitizing you as an individual. They want to digitize you as a citizen because if you believe, like if we just look at the good stuff, if we look at the silver lining of the storm cloud on the horizon, we see or a the world selling where, points. Yeah, the selling point. Ooh, there we go. Yeah, the selling points, the silver lining selling points. What we'll see is that governments want you digitized because – they believe this can improve access to government services and the private industries love the idea of making it essentially easier for you to say yes to stuff. A lot of private industry, like marketing, advertising, it's figuring out how to get you, specifically you, to say yes to a thing, to spend that time, to spend that money, uh, and to become converted as a consumer. Uh, and also, there's a really interesting episode we did on Ridiculous History years and years back about how people stopped being referred to as citizens in the U.S. and started being referred to as consumers. Careful, small change, but it's a big deal, so do check that out. I don't know. It makes sense, right? You, because you're kind Certainly. of like companies sandbox people so effectively, and they make a lot of money off that. Oh, yeah, definitely. And you know, really, the governments in these countries are going the stamps.com route, where a lot of the rhetoric I've heard when it comes to promoting this kind of thing, it is you'll never have to stand in line again at the DMV or at the whatever X places to update your ID every you know certain time frame, or you'll never have to wait to get something back from the government when you submit forms over some system. It's all just going to be digitized. It'll be lightning fast and it'll all be accurate. It makes sense that government and private institutions would be very interested in this. And as you said, Ben, particularly in getting you to click. Oh, yeah. And then also being able to share data with each other in, in a way that uh, in a way that is exponentially more powerful and sophisticated than what's going on now, even with outfits like Cambridge Analytica. They would be able to look at every move you make, every step you take. <laughs> They'll be watching you. Uh, that's, that's the idea. Uh, it, do, it is not necessarily sinister. It's seamless. It's convenient. It, it, the concept is gives you less to worry about, fewer chores. And if you look past that normal everyday convenience, you can imagine some extreme scenarios wherein 
a, a global digital ID. That's the ultimate end game, by the way, a global digital ID of some sort. You can imagine ways in which it would be incredibly beneficial. Like, let's say some kind of disaster has uh, stricken your town uh, or your country. Matter of fact, you know what? Let's keep with the same example. After Matt and Mission Control and me uh, leave Boise, Idaho, something terrible happens in Boise. There is an absolute natural disaster. No one predicted it. Hundreds of thousands of people are fleeing. Our server from the Applebee's earlier that weekend has lived in Boise for a long, long time. And now she all of a sudden, without time to prepare, without time to pack, she has to move. Let's say it's a huge disaster and she can't just go to another state. She has to go to Canada and she has to go to Canada as a refugee with no paperwork, no proof of her ID. This is pretty common with a lot of refugee populations because of the circumstances surrounding their evacuation. So our unfortunate server in this case would have to try to prove that she is who she says she is. If this person had a digital ID, it would function as a sort of global proof. And this would improve their odds of resettlement, improve their odds of accessing services and uh, maybe even getting a hold of their finances, you know, the different electronic accounts they had to leave behind uh, and could help them with job prospects. That's cool. That's pretty amazing. You know what I mean? Because if you're in a refugee situation, you are having one of the most harrowing experiences of your life, you know? Uh, So I can see that as inarguably a positive, a potential positive. It can also simplify so much stuff. I already complained about passwords, but I'm too paranoid to use the keychain thing. And I know it's, it's probably harmless, but with a digital ID, you wouldn't need all those different passwords necessarily. You wouldn't need to do all the different uh, paperwork shenanigans, all the forms, go through the red tape. You just present your thing. Yep. I, I think about a minor traffic accident or something like that and how a digital ID would really change that interaction with everybody. You know, if you've got two parties, two vehicles, there was a small accident, rather than having to exchange any kind of information, you literally would just send over your digital ID file that has the necessary things for a car accident, uh, including all your insurance information. Your insurance company gets all that information as well, verifies it's you, and it all goes down super smoothly and everybody's cars get fixed. And then you never even had to go in the glove compartment. You never even had to check the glove (laughs) box. That's crazy. Also, quick question. This is Matt. This is for you. I, I think I know the answer. Have you ever kept gloves in a glove compartment, like actual gloves? Yes, I have uh, black leather driving gloves at all times. Black leather driving. You have serial killer gloves in your car? Uh, No, it's 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 from the movie Drive, and uh, (laughs) (laughs) it's just something that I do. (laughs) Did I tell you that time where I realized in my go bag that I had um, I had what looked like a kill kit quite accidentally. Like the, uh, you know, because, and the pieces all came to, like, I didn't get them all at once. It was just accreting <laughs> them as it occurred to me what I would need. So I had like work gloves for working on, working on the car, doing minor repairs. I had duct tape, which is one of the most invaluable tools in the world of auto mechanics. <laughs> and uh, then I, I also had um, 
like a, a tarp in instead of a tent. Uh, and mm-hmm. and then I had some rope and, and some like stakes and hammers and stuff to like get the get the tarp yep. situated. Uh, and it wasn't until it wasn't until a friend pointed out that that's kind of sketchy. Hey, if you want to hear more the, more about that, check out our Go Bag episode. Yeah, I was going to say, thanks to the golden age of true crime, all Eagle Scouts are now serial killers just because of the contents of their trunk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, it's a gig economy. You know what I mean? Uh, so <laughs> without explaining that comment, let's go back to <laughs> digital IDs. Uh, so, yeah, in the good case, this is convenient. And in some cases, it could really help out people when they need help the most. So that's pretty dope, right? Nah, maybe not. Maybe not. Spoiler. Uh, there's, there's a guy named Brett Solomon. Uh, I quite enjoy his writing. He wrote an article for Wired a while back, and he laid out some clear, salient, and frankly disturbing concerns about the possibilities of what could go wrong with the digital ID system. This, okay, I want to see what you think of this. This struck me, and I, I know it's still for you too. Uh, this struck me at first as maybe hyperbolic, but after our research, I'm not, I'm not so sure. Uh, Solomon called a digital ID system, quote, one of the gravest risks to human rights of any technology that we have encountered. It's a lot. Wow. Well, the... <clears throat> Because I think, to Solomon's point there, digital ID is not just one thing. It's not one technology. It's a culmination of a whole bunch of different technologies, right? And identification systems mixed with, you know, a, a singular file that has all that stuff. Uh, I, I, I think I understand that, but I don't know. It seems like we're facing a lot of grave risks right now, <laughs> but I guess risks to human rights. I don't know. Let's let's keep talking and let's see how we feel about that statement. Okay, yeah. We'll we'll hit you with another quote from Mr. Solomon where he says, "We are rushing headlong into a future where new technologies will converge to make this risk much more severe, like you were saying, like you already called it." Uh, and the main thing, the main danger of that is that people are not aware of the extent of this issue of the long tail possible effects like there's a thing i was thinking about a lot for a, another show actually uh nolan and i did an episode on this for ridiculous history uh just quite recently called the cobra effect long story short during the british raj uh colonial powers that be saw that delhi had a cobra problem snakes were overrunning the city so their solution was to say all right we're going to crowdsource this we're going to make we're going to roll out a universal solution if you live in delhi and you want a little extra cash kill some cobras bring us the skins we'll pay you but this led to unintended consequences because they instituted such a big system so quickly people who are you know people are super intelligent they said, hey, why, why am I walking around like a schmuck in the mean streets of Delhi looking for cobras? Why don't I just get a couple cobras and start growing cobras? Why don't I start a little cobra farm and then I'll just kill them when they get big enough and then I, I'll just be making money. And this led to a bunch of people becoming like 
cobra bootleggers or cobra farmers. Eventually, the government figured it out, and they said, okay, well, we're not going to pay anybody anymore for these cobras. We realize there's a problem with this system. We're going to dial it back a little. And then the cobra farmers said, oh, well, all these cobras are worthless. What's the point of killing them? I'm just going to let them out. (laughs) And as a result, (laughs) as a result, Delhi, uh, directly because of its plan to eradicate cobras, ended up with more cobras than they had in the beginning. So this this kind of applies here because people aren't sure what the long-term consequences of a system like this could be. Because honestly, we don't understand the full consequences yet of some of the technology that will be used as building blocks for digital ID, right? Like facial recognition, added to real-time geolocation. I know what you look like. I know where you are. Now, you know, Santa Claus rhyme, right? We're making a list, checking it <laughs> twice, et cetera. You know yeah. what I mean? I also know everything that you've purchased uh, since you've owned a credit card. There's mm-hmm. the list. It's tied directly back to the credit card you got when George W. Bush was president. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> um, I mean, that's scary uh, alone. I know your property, what you own. I know how much you pay for rent. I know your credit score. I- <laughs> yeah. Ugh. I know who you, I know who you hang with. Yeah. Right. Uh, I know your, mm-hmm. uh, let's see. I, I know your friends at a Kevin Bacon level and I know who they know. And I know who they know. So this, like this dramatically erodes, if not completely erases the concept of privacy, right? And there's, and there's been a concerted uh, effort, I would say, in the zeitgeist to make privacy concerns seem less important than they are. Uh, because it's beneficial for companies if you don't worry about it too much. The, so what we're saying here now like this digital ID system, this global ID system. And granted, at this point, that is a thought experiment. That hasn't happened yet. You don't have a global ID card or number or code yet. Uh, But emphasis on yet. What would happen then is that there would be a constant stream of communication about you living live at all times on the quote-unquote Internet of Things It would go from you to other nodes, to other identities, to other businesses, government agencies, all of it, Kevin, all of it. Hashtag devil's advocate. Great job, Pacino. Uh, (laughs) Automatically without your informed consent. So you're in. um, So we've left. We've left Boise. We're out on the road. Uh, We're okay. We're flying. We have a layover on the way back to New York or Atlanta. And while we're there, we buy a couple of like souvenirs at the airport. Then in this kind of reality, the information about those purchases and the time uh, that we made those purchases and the company we kept during those purchases can all communicate out to other nodes of the network, unless there are laws against it, without informed consent. You know what I mean? On the off chance, for some reason, if you didn't want your credit union to know that you were leaning on a different credit card pretty heavily to buy like a miniature replication of that weird nightmare horse at the uh, at the Denver airport, you mm-hmm. couldn't stop them. 
It doesn't matter why you wouldn't want them to know that. It just means you could not stop them. Uh, and this can go through all sorts of angles. It's, it's scary how plausible that is. The next thing, these systems in many ways are automated. Machine learning, artificial intelligence, they're being used already without a world of digital ID to make decisions based on the electronic footprint or the data footprint they have of you in your past actions and your current actions. And it's all about predicting your future actions. Like Matt said, it's all about getting those clicks. Uh, and these systems are built, unfortunately, by humans. And humans all function under some degree of bias and discrimination. And we very much see a sins of the father situation with a lot of this stuff. Like it's It's hard to figure out the best way to implement these things in a non-discriminatory, fair method. Uh, there's often not a lot of human review, and there, there probably won't, there'll probably be less and less human review, honestly, as the systems get smarter and cleaner and more seamless. Uh, and there's definitely not going to be a lot of transparency, right? Unless there's a specific law that says, when something crazy happens to you, unexpected, every time you get a weirdly specific ad, you have to be told exactly what information led that vendor to send or that platform to send that ad to you. That would be amazing. I'd love to learn that. I think most people would. Oh, man, Ben, I just watched this documentary on Netflix about Cambridge Analytica, and it feels very similar to what you're what you're describing here. <laughs> Um, there was a single person that wanted to get all of the information that Cambridge Analytica had on him. Just one person. He said, okay, so you collected all this data on all of these people. You said you had it on every voting American. Just show me what you have on me and had on me during, mm -hmm. during the 2016 election. Just, just show it to me and went to court and they ended up pleading guilty to this other thing so that they didn't have to give this person the information. Like reveal their hand. Oh, they triaged, huh? That's mm -hmm. right. Yeah, they said they said it's. I guess essentially they're treating it like paying an additional business expense to keep the secret sauce. So it makes you wonder because you can see uh, you can see the value that they place in that uh, idea. Wow. Yeah, like yeah. I'll, I'll plead guilty so I can keep my keep my magic tricks. Well, yeah, and. and it effectively it was his psychological profile that was built by Cambridge Analytica and the Facebook data that they had along with several other major data points that they had on him. Uh, we, you know, we can kind of guess on what it was that they're hiding, but still sure. it's, uh, it's creepy to think the extents that uh, a private corporation that is benefiting huge amounts of money on just the data that we generate and then thinking that we're going to connect all of that data in one place and then carry it around with us essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Centralization. That's another issue. And, and Solomon writes about that too. Uh, he says the, the problem with this is that there are things like social credit systems. And I love that he, he points that out like China's Sesame credit, social credit system, which was opt in and then became mandatory and we called it. The issue with this centralized digital ID is that it means there is a possibility 
that your participation in society could be quickly and easily cut off, right? Imagine you're going somewhere, like we talked about in the sanctions episode, all of a sudden, ATMs work for other people, just not for you. You know what I mean? Uh, the mo- one, uh, another like paranoid, more extreme spectrum of this, um, you have a vehicle, your vehicle totally works, it's in good condition, you get in to start it, but something about your ID won't let it start. You know what I mean? Mm. Like that, and, and again, not to spook people too much, but we need to understand that those are possible things in the future. Yeah. I mean, go right now. Try getting on an international flight without a passport. Just see what happens. Uh, see, how you, <laughs> I mean, it's not going to happen. And imagine that, as Ben said, if your vehicle depended on you being the person that's trying to pilot that vehicle or just drive it, you can call it driving, whatever. <laughs> I like piloting. Um, <laughs> I feel like when full digital IDs happen, I mean, we're going to be piloting vehicles rather than driving them, but that's fine because I can't imagine this is happening anytime soon, but it is. But it is. Uh, yes. Yeah. So there's another question that we have to ask, like digital IDs may well become necessary for you to function in future society as society becomes increasingly digitized not having something like this may mean that you start to live in a very different world if you don't have a digital id in a digitally connected society do you exist we're going to pause for a word from our sponsors and we'll return with some um some of the not so nice things about this Oh, wait, we're, we're just now getting into the not-so-nice things? Oh, boy. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've returned. So the stuff that we outlined as both possible benefits and both possible uh, dangers, governments already know. They they know about this stuff. Private entities know about this stuff, especially in the world of finance and data collection. Authoritarian governments also know about this. There's a common mistake that people make, especially if you grow up in a democracy where you are raised on a steady diet of uh, anti-dictator propaganda. And just to be clear, I'm anti-dictator, I think. All of us on the show are pretty, pretty, pretty much on the same page there. But for an authoritarian government, this is a tremendous opportunity. Matt, you and I are talking off air about it. And I, I said it in slightly more blue terms. But if you were a dictator and you sat down and said, how can I build a better surveillance system for oppressing dissent? You couldn't. You would build something like this. This is the, the this is like a uh, a birthday gift for those kind of those sorts of governments. They can be easily leveraged for exploitation, for abuse. You can imagine any demographic you wish. Like there is a world in which you could say, for instance, uh, let's say Estonia has decided for some reason to track and imprison blue-eyed people and they had this digital id kind of thing and that's a weird example because estonia i think has has a pretty high percentage of the population who are blue-eyed you could do it with this thing you could say well i don't even want to track them i just i don't like i don't like the sky-eyed people walking around getting driver's licenses and going to atms and stuff so just cut them off and then you could enter that 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 little piece of biometric info into the system and then pop the thing and boom, there are restrictions on what their digital ID allows them to do. That's the concern. And we're just picking blue eyed 
blue eyes as as a biometric quality because it seems relatively innocuous. Blue-eyed conspiracy realist out there, we're friends. We have your back. We're not we're not telling Estonia to do anything. But Ben, that reminds me of the elementary school teacher that used to give the lesson on blue-eyed people versus brown-eyed people and and she taught a very specific lesson about that and I can't remember her name. It's incredible. You can look it up online. You can watch a whole video of this incredible teacher just giving this example to teach children what what it feels like to be othered uh, early on, uh, you know, in education. Um, uh. But, you know, what if those IDs have, you know, ethnic background information? What if they have religious background information attached to them? Like, what does that do? Think, I mean, think oh, about God. that, at least over the course of history, what we've seen. Right, right. The human track record, which could be best described as not great, not great. Don't love it. Anyhow, so we, we've talked about, and we're going to get to that because I think that's one of the most important points of today's episode. Uh, and it's one that is also, unfortunately, the most plausible. So we talked about discrimination. We talked about surveillance, talked about privacy concerns. We should also talk about security because these things could be easily hacked. As a matter of fact, Matt and I were earlier talking about big data breaches that just popped up in the news and disappeared. And there may be a future episode on that uh, coming your way. And, and one of the questions we'll try to answer is why those disappeared from the news exactly, or why the mainstream news treated those things the way they did. But maybe for our purposes now, it's best for us to look at an example of a digital ID system in action. The best way to do that, India's National Digital ID Framework. One system to rule them all. It's the world's largest of its kind, and it was recently shown to have been compromised. The case went all the way to the highest court of the land, and uh, I guess we could describe it like this. So its street name is Adhar. Its technical name is the UID program, and... Adhar, by the way, is a, is a Hindi term that kind of translates to foundation. So foundation was made in 2008, kind of a, a while ago now. It is a unique 12-digit number that is assigned to every resident of India. It's linked to their demographic data, their biometric information, and it is right now the largest thing of its kind in the world, which means also it's the largest thing of its kind ever in human history. So it also got tied to all these other services, like how how to get rations if rations are being distributed. It ties into your banking. It ties into your internet services. It ties into your international travel. It even ties into your marriage registration because you have to prove that you are who you say you are. Uh, private tech firms. They're using it. They're using Foundation or Adhar. And Facebook, you would love this, man. Facebook is even testing new logins on its platform that would require Indian users to use that national ID to log in. So you couldn't just oh. be like, you know, queso boy at yeah. uh, yahoo.com or whatever. Dude, the concept of directly tying social media personas to your digital ID 
that's probably terrifying to a lot of us. Wow. Uh, it doesn't scare me, though, because <laughs> you know me. Not on not on the social meds. <laughs> yeah, which is a decision I respect, uh, and it is true. Uh, this led to the court attempting to sort out a few different things. Also, wait, before we move on to this, I got to say, man, I can't be the only person here. I, I know you and I are on the same page. Uh, if you ever go to a website that wants you to log in and it's like, continue with Facebook or continue with Google, I just find a way around it or I just don't go to that site because that really skeeves me out. Absolutely, 100%. Don't do that. <laughs> don't yes. log in with Facebook or Google or whatever. Just mm. log in with whatever account they want you to make with your email. Just make a, a fun new email <laughs> that you mm -hmm. only get alerts for whatever that thing is. <laughs> or use uh, one of the email throwaway systems, which we should, we should probably talk about in the future. But anyhow, and those are legal, by the way. Uh, here's what the court of India found after they were attempting to sort out these concerns. They said, one, private companies cannot demand that you use Adhar. Two, they cited a need for robust data protection frameworks. Essentially, they recognized a problem. They said, yeah, we get it. We get it. That's, that's not a good look. Uh, and then third, surveillance. For the first time in the laws of India, now the high court justices will have to be consulted in any data disclosure request for national security related demands of of like like we think this person may be involved in terrorist activities that's the easiest example uh we would have just pulled their card you know what i mean and figured out what's what but now we have to at least check with the judicial system kind of weird that didn't occur before uh but lest lest any uh u.s citizens in the crowd think that's ridiculous Ask yourself how many times FISA has said no to similar requests. You know what I mean? I don't know the exact number, but I know it's as close to zero as you can get. Yeah, yeah. FISA is like if a court system took an improv class. Their resting, their resting like mentality is yes and. Uh, so, <laughs> so I walked around the corner for that one. Sorry, man. But the other thing is, Citizens now in India can file complaints about data breaches. They couldn't before. Uh, you could say, if you want to be corporate America about it, you could say, hey, we're, you know, we're building the car while we drive it. But at some point, knowing what could happen here that we've outlined here, you have to ask yourself, is that really the sort of road trip you want to take? Because now we have to return to the thing that you would establish earlier, Matt which is a, a tremendous concern. I think it's one of the biggest immediate concerns once a system like this is up and running. When it has demographic information that includes stuff like ethnicity, that includes stuff like maybe spiritual beliefs or identifications, is it possible to weaponize that information, to weaponize that system against a given demographic of people? Uh, there's, a, there's a cool article on historians.org by an author named Jose Ragas, and he brought up something that I hadn't thought about 
in years, which was the scuttlebutt around 2015 or so, the idea that in the United States, people of the Muslim faith might be required to carry special ID cards. And that concept is poisonous. You know, every every student of history knows exactly where that kind of thing leads. The Muslim community in the U.S. responded in a tremendously creative way. They're uploading photos of IDs to Instagram, Twitter, etc., and putting the hashtag Muslim ID. And I'm over the moon that something like that did not get instituted. But think, like, think about all the areas of the world that have intergenerational, long-standing conflicts based based on religion, based on ethnicity or perceived tribal affiliation. This could become a powerful battle between conflicting or a powerful tool in a battle between conflicting groups. It's it's way deeper than just having a driver's license that could also be your passport when you need it. Yeah, precisely. Well, and let's just take it back one more time to the mechanism. Where does this digital ID actually live? Where do you carry it on you? Because if you think about it right now, if I'm not traveling with my ID in my wallet, I can, you know, claim to be somebody else and maybe like save myself if I'm in a really troubling position. Uh, If I am traveling with my phone, that's another situation. Imagine if, you know, because the phone already has inherent issues, right, with privacy, (laughs) specifically that just by it being pinged by cell towers, somebody could figure out where I am. Uh, What if the digital ID is on your phone, which is, I think, the most likely scenario. Apple right now is attempting to work these new digital IDs that are popping up in several states in the United States, trying to get them to work with Apple Wallet so that you could literally just open up your Apple Wallet and use your ID that's in there to verify your identity. Um, In Sweden, a couple of years ago, you may have seen this, you probably saw this, Ben. In 2019, there were stories going around NBC and a couple other places featuring one of these implants that you can get in your right here. Uh, I'm pointing to between my thumb and the rest of my fingers. That's about the size of a grain of rice, a little larger that sits in there and functions as an RFID chip that would have your digital ID on it, your banking information, your credit cards, all that stuff. Um, imagine if that becomes the norm (laughs) where it really is an implant, you know, it's not a brain implant or anything that invasive, but it is something physically on your body that just functions as the thing you use every time you have to pay for something, every time you have to prove who you are, every time you want to rent whatever, it just occurs that way. Yeah, and we become normalized so quickly. Right now, that kind of stuff is um, largely in the world of wetware enthusiasts, uh, which it is talked about. It's becoming, uh, yeah, we did talk about it, but it's becoming pre- pretty mainstream in Sweden, mm. a couple other uh, countries in that region that are just looking forward, I think, more so than uh, than other places, specifically the U.S. Yeah, uh, 100%. Uh, to, to quote Chuck Palahniuk, I am Jack's complete lack of surprise. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, it's there's, there's going to be, there's always, with these sorts of societal changes, there's always a tipping point. You know what I mean? If you were alive before the time of cell phones and smartphones, 
then you have seen how quickly widespread adoption can occur, right? And there are, if you are working in an economy of scale, there are some really clever things you can do to incentivize adoption. So you can um, give people discounts on stuff if they have, you know, the this implant here. You can also have it show up in a flattering way in works of fiction, right? Like sunglasses were popularized by celebrities, even though First Nations people had pretty much made up sunglasses thousands and thousands of years ago, right? No one cared until the tool of fiction was used to leverage that. Uh, And we're not saying that sunglasses are the same as smartphones or the same as, you know, this concept of a digital ID, but it's important to know how these ideas can be spread and propagated to you. With that, we have to ask for your take. What do you think? What is your personal cost-benefit analysis? Would you be okay with a digital ID? What do you think about the data collection systems that are going to function with a digital ID, the things that actually scan and pull all that data in? Uh, If a government agency can create something like that, don't you think smart people, you know, engineers who maybe have nefarious ideas about how what to do with that data and how to get a hold of it. Don't you think they could scrape up that that stuff if we're just walking around with it on our persons at all times? Uh, that worries me. What do you think? Yeah, and what would it take for you to adopt this? You know, again, I mm. think of Gattaca and the way that uh, – certain genetic standards were instituted on the population. There was never a law saying you can't just be a regular born human or just a bunch of laws saying that regular born humans can't do certain things. So yeah, it's, it's strange. It it is strange. Uh, It is in no small part disturbing. It hasn't happened yet, but it's probably some form of this, some aspect of it is on the way. uh, And We want to know if you think that's a good thing, a bad thing, or just a thing. Are these concerns overblown? Let us know. We try to be easy to find online. Facebook, here's where it gets crazy. Instagram, uh, stay tuned for some other announcements we have. Uh, You can also... Uh, find, you can find me on social media at Bimbolin HSW or at Bimbolin on Instagram. If you want a behind the scenes look at some of the stuff we're working on or any weird questions, send them my way. Uh, also, if you, uh, like Matt, have objectively made the correct decision, I'll say it, and dropped off social media, uh, but you still have a story to tell us, uh, we want to make sure that you can still reach us. And that's why we have an official phone number. Jace, I still don't know how we pulled it off, but I'm very glad we have it. Yes, we do. That number is one eight three three S T D W Y T K. When you call in, give yourself a cool nickname. You've got three minutes at the top. Please do tell us whether or not we can use your voice and message on the air. That's very helpful to us. In that three minutes, say whatever you want. Ask a question, suggest a topic, tell us the answer to the questions we just asked. And you've got three minutes, again, to do that. If you've got more to say than can fit in that time frame, why not instead send us a good old-fashioned email? We are conspiracy at iheartradio.com.
Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh. Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.